Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, it seems that all around us is a, a lack of peace. Whether like the video, it's a lack of peace in our homes or with our friends, perhaps at work or even in our world, uh, we are desperate for you this morning. So pray that you would have your way with us. We humbly invite you to dominate this place and give us what the scriptures call the peace that passes understanding. For Christ's sake and for his reputation, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. He just retired this last year, but perhaps you're familiar with the famous basketball player who changed his name uh, to World Peace, uh, Ron Artest. The ironic thing is that uh, Ron was once known as the bad boy of the NBA. In his career, he had over 60 technical fouls, 33 foul outs, six ejections, and got suspended for a record-setting 86 games for which he lost over $5 million in pay. He also has faced, in the past, domestic violence charges. So he changes his name from Ron Artest to Meta World Peace. According to Wikipedia, Artest said, changing my name was meant to inspire and bring youth together all around the world. His publicist, Courtney Barnes, said that World Peace chose Meta as his first name because it's a traditional Buddhist word that means loving kindness and friendliness toward all. Perhaps our test was motivated by an interest in his Buddhist philosophy. Or perhaps our test was motivated just to clean up his act a little bit. Or maybe this was just a publicity stunt. But one thing is very clear. His name change is rather ironic. Even after he changed his name, I remember watching him play a game against the Oklahoma City Thunder when after a dunk, Meta World Peace took out an Oklahoma player, James Harden, with this hard, flagrant foul. An elbow thrown violently into his opponent's face and the irony of his new name became comical. Uh, The announcer from the sideline said, World Peace elbowed him. The LA Times reported, World Peace was ejected from Sunday's game. CNN said, World Peace was given a seven-game suspension. Uh, Rather than representing peace in this world, it turns out that Ron Artest's actions are just another reminder to us that there's still something very broken inside the heart of mankind. How appropriate to our situation. It seems like we long for world peace, we sing songs about it, we write books about it, we even try to enact laws to promote it, but at the end of the game, world peace gets ejected and suspended. It turns out to be a slogan without much substance. As I was preparing for this message, I just went to Google and typed in peace to see how many web pages were devoted to this subject, and I found 273 million As I glanced over the results, there were articles about the Peace Corps, Peace Prizes, Peace Poles, Peace Colleges, Peace Endowments, Peace Gardens, Peace Institutes, and Peace Protests. I found statistics that said there's a large group of millennials that are very concerned these days about world peace, which is encouraging. There were groups, Women for Peace, Jews for Peace, Buddhists for Peace, Religions for Peace, Musicals for Peace, and Children for Peace. The list goes on and on, 273 million websites and articles dedicated uh, to this one subject. But if you examine them closely, they show an amazing assortment of formulas for finding peace. Some of those formulas were noble and inspirational. Others of them were simplistic and superficial. Nearly all of them based on human effort to resolve conflict and get along with others. 
Although some of these efforts have encouraged a temporary peace, few of them could report any genuine lasting results. All of them fail to address the ultimate reason why there is actually so little peace in this world. Well, fortunately, you and I don't have to wade through 200 million web pages to get the answer to this question. Through Holy Scripture, God has graciously and repeatedly described the one and only past path toward genuine, lasting peace. That path is beautifully described in our text for today. That's what Luke chapter 2 is all about. I would invite you to join me there. If you look up the word peace in the Bible, you find it's used with three different categories. Uh, Peace in the Bible sometimes refers to an inner peace or a tranquility or a a peace within. Other times in the Bible, peace refers to an interpersonal peace and a solving of conflict that occurs between two human beings or groups. Then, of course, the culmination of that would be peace on a global scale or what we call world peace. For our purposes, I'd like for you to think about those three things as we look at the passage today because they are interrelated and like a pyramid, They are built one on top of the other. Our passage addresses all three types of peace in different ways. In our series, in Luke chapter 2, our goal is to just tell you the Christmas story for these four weeks of Advent. From from the beginnings of Luke's gospel, a little bit of the story will be told here each week uh, because it's possible to go through this whole Christmas season and never actually hear the Christmas story. You can go to the mall and hear the music, or you can go outside and see the lights, or uh, you can go through this whole month and never actually hear the Christmas story, and that would be sad. And so in this Advent series, that's what we're doing each week, telling you a little bit of the Christmas story. And today, we reach Luke chapter 2. If you're ready, say amen. Amen. Verse 1 says this, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David because he belonged to the house and line, David. This is really amazing to me because Caesar Augustus was the most powerful person in the world. I mean, the first Roman emperor. His empire stretched from England to India. One of the things that he was most famous for was, as we heard earlier, thank you, Matt and Susan, was for establishing the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. Now, the Peace of Rome was a peace given through strength. It was a peace that was accomplished because of their military might. As one of our elders, Ed Williams, once said, it's easy to have peace when all of your enemies are dead. That's the kind of peace that Rome brought to this world. So Caesar had this massive amount of jurisdiction and power. But, however, we know 700 years prior to this, there was a prophet named Micah who told us about another ruler who would come to bring peace. He talks about him in chapter 5. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small, Among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times, or you could translate that phrase, even from eternity, and he will be our peace. Notice that word, peace. Secondly, notice the problem. Micah the prophet had said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, which is about a hundred miles away from Nazareth where they were. So here's kind of what I think happened. 
in the providence of God, in the sovereignty of God, he elbowed somebody in the Roman Empire and said, I think we need to count the people. And so Caesar Augustus got this idea and said, hey, I think we need to count the people. And so God used the emperor to get his son born in the right place in the right time in history, even though he didn't even know it, which I think is kind of cool. Nonetheless, this guy gets a mention in the Christmas story, but it's not for the great things he did in the world. In fact, from our perspective, he's really just a footnote in the story of the birth of our Savior, which leads us to an important point. When it comes to real peace, real peace is not found in politics or power. Just as the mighty Roman Empire would disintegrate and fade away, that's the way it's always going to be when it comes to the governments of men. Just think about how polarized our country is today over politics. Hard to find peace. By the way, as a side note, I can't think of a worse venue uh, that would steal away your peace faster than to argue about politics on social media. Please don't do that. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved as good citizens and strive for the greater good. We should. I'm just saying we should recognize the limitations inherently inside of politics because human governments don't have power to change the human heart. Now, does the government have a unique opportunity to do good in this world? Yes. And we ought to pray for our leaders whether you are a Donald Trump fan or not, whether you are a Republican or a Democrat, beloved, we should support them and pray pray for them as our leaders. But we also, as Christians, should realize that like Barack Obama and like George W. Bush and like Bill Clinton and like George H.W. Bush and like Ronald Reagan and like King Saul and like Alexander the Great and like Napoleon and like Caesar Augustus here, all of our leaders will ultimately disappoint us. And the reason is because the one who brings peace for the whole world has already come. The promised one has already been promised, and his name is Jesus Christ. There won't be true peace until he returns to reign on his glorious throne. When the government sits on his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince, of peace. Let's go back to that story. Joseph is headed now from Nazareth to Bethlehem with his wife. Verse 5 says this, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, when we picture this story, we imagine Mary riding on a what? A donkey, which is actually not in the Bible at all. But it is that way in every single kid's book I've ever seen. And maybe that's how it happened. We really don't know. It doesn't say. But maybe she was riding a horse. Or maybe it was a mule. Or ladies, maybe she was walking. It took a long time, too, because this is an eight-day journey being described here. As a man, I can't say that I have any firsthand experience with this issue. But taking an eight-day journey while being very pregnant doesn't seem like a very enjoyable experience. But what's striking here is that you don't hear any groaning or grumbling or mumbling or complaining on the part of Mary. Although this journey was completely unplanned and unpredictable, still somehow you see her maintaining her peace, which leads us to point number two. Real peace is not found in planning or predictability. One of the most common ways I personally lose my sense of peace is when I get thrown a curveball. 
Something unplanned happens. Just like that, I lose my bearings. I I lose my sense of being in control. And as a result, I lose my peace. But the Bible gives to me and to you a surprising resource. We can hold our plans loosely and live with some sense of unpredictability and uncertainty and still have peace at the same time. Those two things can actually coexist if we know the Lord. Now, I realize for some of you today, life is good. And we rejoice with you. But listen to this next point because you might need it tomorrow. Now, others of you, uh, life is okay. It's manageable. Uh, But listen to this next point because tomorrow your life might become unmanageable. And then others of you today, right now you're experiencing this kind of disruption in your life. Listen to this point because it's just for you. The peace we long for, the peace we hope for, the peace we search for is not found by shooting for it or planning for it. It's not a magical place we have to get to in life. The peace we need is found in a person and a relationship with him. Look at 2, Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you his peace at all times and in every situation. Notice that phrase, peace himself. Now if peace is a person, not a set of circumstances or a place I arrive at, then my peace can never be taken away from me without my permission because he's always with me. Author Ann Voskamp says it this way, peace isn't a place to arrive at, but a person to abide in. Can we say that together? Peace isn't a place to arrive at, but a person to abide in. This is so countercultural because our culture teaches us that peace is when we get to that place lying on a beach, not a care in the world, all kinds of financial stability, and we just get to just chillax. But the Bible says to us that even when circumstances aren't lining up for us, even when life happens, and it will, no matter how much I plan or work hard and save and am responsible, after I've done everything I can on my end, inevitably I still have to live with some measure of unpredictability and uncertainty. And we all do. But what I'm saying is when those things come, and they will come, you don't have to react to that by losing your peace. Because your peace isn't found in your circumstances, which can change in such an unpredictable way, your peace can be found in the Lord Jesus Christ, who never changes. St. Augustine said it this way, God alone is the place of peace that cannot be disturbed. Philippians chapter 4 calls this the peace that passes understanding. The unbeliever cannot ever experience a peace like this. The book of Isaiah speaks to this issue. The wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Like the tossing sea, turbulent, always back and forth, never fully at rest, never fully at peace. But you know what the believer is like? The believer is like one of those rocks toward the bottom of that picture on the screen. Sometimes the ocean gets kind of rough. Sometimes the water crashes over on top of those rocks. And sometimes if it's a big wave, you go to the beach and you see, wow, That wave just totally covered that whole rock. Maybe that's the end of that rock, but then sure enough, the wave recedes and the rock's still there. That's a picture of the Christian who puts his trust in God. They can be firm. They can find a place of peace. They can find what Isaiah says in chapter 26, 
perfect peace. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Now, it's not that the waves don't hit us. They do. It means because we have a relationship with the Lord Jesus, we can take the hits because there's a resilience there that's his. That's the peace of God. So Mary and Joseph, even in an unpredictable unpredictable environment, take that journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And the story goes on to say in verse 6, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. No room. They went to some kind of temporary shelter. What did it look like? I don't know. My nativity set at home kind of looks like a barn. Some people say it should have looked more like a cave. Some people say they had houses in those days with an upper floor and a lower floor, and an upper level was where the people would live, uh, but downstairs is where they would keep the animals. Uh, maybe it was like that. We don't know, but whatever it was, uh, this wasn't the, the, the Ritz-Carlton. This wasn't the Hilton. This wasn't even like Motel 6. This was a place where some animals were doing some smelly things, and there, this was a place where there was, it was not really vet, very sanitary. Now, let me just ask you a question. If you were invited into the PR meeting in heaven, and they were offering this question around the discussion table, how are we all going to roll out the Savior coming to bring peace to the whole world? What kind of marketing campaign would you put together? You probably want every single cable uh, news outlet going. You'd have a team for email marketing. You'd have a team for social media. You'd probably want a good ground game out there who are knocking on doors, holding town halls, thousands of volunteers on your team, looking for every venue, every photo op that you could find to get the word out about this, not to mention a few million bucks that you spent on TV advertising. But here in the Bible, tucked away in a far corner of the Roman world in a little town called Bethlehem, Not a big city, not a big castle, something like that. When God sends his own son, he sends him to a manger. There's a commonness to all of this that's pretty surprising. Pretty amazing. I think we forget about it because we've heard this so many times. But it reminds me of point number three. Real peace is not going to be found in prestige prestige or prosperity. You know, it's interesting to note that America's newly identified at-risk group are kids who come from affluent, well-educated families. In spite of their economic and social advantages, they are reporting the highest rates of anxiety disorders and unhappiness among other groups of children their age. As many as 22% of adolescent girls from financially comfortable families suffer from clinical depression. That's three times the national rate of adolescent girls in their age group. Sad. Friends, my point is there is no inherent peace that comes with prosperity or prestige. Instead, often there's an incredible pressure and a relying on the self and a realization that none of the stuff in this world can really bring any kind of lasting peace. I'm not saying that we should bash the wealthy. Jesus looked at the rich young ruler and loved him, and so should we. But the message we, the church, can bring to our community is that true peace is not found by moving up the ranks and getting more stuff or landing that top position. It's found in the model of our Savior right here who left the place of prestige and came down for the good of his people. 
Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. You know, I was always told when I was growing up, actions speak louder than words. Your parents ever tell you that? Actions speak louder than words. If that's true, and it is, what do we learn about God from his actions right here? I submit to you this thesis. What we learn about our God based on his actions right here is that he is humble. Our God is humble. We have a God who condescends. Now, don't misunderstand. Sometimes we think that word condescension means it means to have a, a patronizing attitude to look down on people. I don't, I don't mean it like that. If you look it up in Webster's Dictionary, to condescend means to descend to a less formal or dignified level or to waive the privileges of your rank. To condescend means to humble oneself. This is what we see God doing in creation, not just here, but over and over and over again in the scriptures to the point where my professor of systematic theology, Dr. Glenn Kreider, suggested that perhaps God's condescension and his humility should be one of his attributes that we study with the other attributes of God. But oftentimes you don't see those listed in the attributes of God. In other words, this is what our God is like. Our God is humble. In our world, surrounded by people who are so full of themselves, whether it's professional athletes or politicians or Hollywood elites strutting around like peacocks, showing off their wealth, fame, power, prestige, and prosperity, this is really something to behold. Now, I have a question. If humility, if condescension is actually an attribute of God, why do we not see more attention on this attribute? I suggest the reason that my professor gave us is true. Dr. Kreider said, I suspect that the humility of God is difficult to accept because of the implications that such a doctrine would have for us. You catch that? In other words, if I believe that God is humble, the obvious implication is that I should be humble too. If I have a God who serves, the obvious implication is that I ought to serve too. If I have a God who does not look to their own interests first, but instead looks to the interests of others, then the obvious implication is that I also should look not to my own interests first, but first to the interests of others. Because our God is humble, and we are to reflect him as those made in his image. What if this was actually one of the essential ingredients for finding peace? Recently, the Arbinger Institute put out an outstanding book on this subject called The, the Anatomy of Peace. And in it, they said, if we're ever going to get to the heart of the problem with our lack of peace in this world, they suggested we consider what I thought was a surprising suggestion. And the suggestion was this. We actually like our lack of peace. We actually like our problems. We actually like our conflicts. And you might say, Pastor Dave, that's crazy. Nobody wants that unless they're out of their minds. And I'd say, you're right. Oftentimes we are out of our minds. And the reason is because deep down, uh, the scriptures teach us that there is a problem in the heart of humanity called sin. And that problem turns us in on ourselves. There is an utter self-centeredness at the bottom of our being. Everything we want, say, or do is focused on pleasing and loving ourselves. Now, okay, hear me out for a second. If that's true, in some way, shape, or form, 
We will eventually mistreat others because we will see them as obstacles. We will eventually use them as means for our own ends. We will see them not just as obstacles, but sometimes as vehicles. And we will exploit them somehow or marginalize them one way or the other. We will treat them as not as important as ourselves. And this obviously creates conflict. And here's the other thing. God has given us a conscience. And deep down inside, we know we should not be treating other people like that. And it bothers us that we do not respect them and love them and treat them with dignity. And so as a result of our conscience, we feel unbelievably guilty. Then the only way we can assuage our guilt is to justify our selfishness by finding something wrong with them. To find something in them that we tell ourselves deserves our mistreatment. Why? Simply to justify my own selfishness. Rarely does any of this happen on the conscious level. It's all underneath the surface. But listen to this quote from a particular world leader in the book. You have to understand, he says, we and our enemies are perfect for each other. Each of us gives the other reason never to have to change. As you're beginning to see, if we're ever going to get down to the bottom of our problem of conflict, of our problem with a lack of peace, we have to address our sinful condition. And then we can begin to see people as they really are, made in the image of God, and love them as we love ourselves. And then from that perspective, we can begin to pursue real peace with them, but we've got to be willing to humble ourselves. I submit to you that is the pathway that is modeled by our Lord at Christmas. The Apostle Paul says it this way, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. And as a result, our God gets very enthusiastic about people who will humble themselves, about people who will pour themselves out and spend themselves on others because that's what love requires, because that's what love does. As Cornelius Plantinga says it, the Son of God just does what he sees his Father doing. He empties himself and takes the form of a servant because that's how they do it in his family. Brothers and sisters, the invitation of the Lord Jesus is to become part of the family of God and to humble ourselves. And after we see what he did at Christmas, he turns to you and he turns to me and he says, now follow me. The story goes on to say in verse 8, and there were, what? Shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks, at night. It's worth noting that shepherds in those days were kind of outcasts, especially in the religious system, because they were always ceremonially unclean, always ceremonially unclean. And so it's very interesting to me that when God decides to show up, he shows up to the least likely people in the world. Isn't that cool? So there they are out there keeping watch over their flocks at night. Verse 9 And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, 
and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Just like everybody who ever encounters an angel in the Bible, they are very afraid. Angels in the Bible are scary. And so when someone tells me my child is just like an angel, I'm like, well, what do you mean by that? Because angels in the Bible, they're scary dudes. When an angel shows up in the Bible, uh, you know, it kind of feels like you got called into the principal's office. Like, okay, what did I do wrong? Am I in trouble? What's going on? They're terrified. The story goes on to say in verse 10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news. Hmm. You know, Walker Percy once said, the world is waiting for news. Waiting for news. When we first put a man on the moon, that was big news. When the Allies landed at Normandy, that was big news. But that is nothing compared to God coming to earth here. I bring you good news that will bring great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. Notice one phrase there, to you, meaning to you, the shepherds who are basically the outcasts, to you guys who aren't included in the other religious groups, to you who are on the low end of the totem pole of life, to you, the ones that are always serving the upper class, a savior has been born to you. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby. Verse 12, a baby? How are we going to find a baby? That's like a needle in a haystack. Well, actually, you're kind of on the right track. This baby will be wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. A feeding trough? Okay, that's kind of unique. That's pretty humble, especially for those of us who know who this baby was and is. God? In a manger? He made everything. And yet here he is, unable to do anything except what a baby does, lie there and stare and maybe make some noises. That's what my babies did. God needing to be fed? God needing to be changed? The more you think about this, the more staggering it gets. Let's finish the story. Verse 13. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rested. You catch that word, peace. Why did the angelic choir choose to use that word, peace? Why not say, and on earth mercy to those, or on earth love to those on whom his favor rests? The answer is because Christmas is addressing a very specific issue of peace. But the angels are not announcing a global peace. That will be later. They're not even really announcing interpersonal peace. That's not what this is about. And they're not announcing an inner peace. Instead, there's another kind of peace that we were in need of, and it sits at the bottom of our pyramid. It's the kind of peace which is foundation to all, foundational to all the other kinds of pieces the Bible talks about, and it is this, a peace with God. You see, ladies and gentlemen, the greatest conflict that we've ever been involved in as a people was not World War I or World War II or 
Korea or Vietnam or the Cold War or the War on Terror. The greatest conflict we've ever been involved in was the conflict between us and God because of our sin. Because of that, we were his enemies. We were at war with God. But God, because of his great mercy, because of his great love, sent his son to this world once and for all to end that conflict and to, in a sense, sign a peace treaty between God and man by dying on the cross for our sins and by rising again victorious over the grave. And as a result, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5.1, therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's good news. This truth can be put into two very simple phrases. No Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, no peace. If you know him, you have peace. The most important kind of peace you'll ever have. Peace with God. If you don't know him, you won't ever really have peace. This is what the angels were talking about to the shepherds. Peace on earth, goodwill to men on whom his favor rests. So let me ask you, does his favor rest on you? Do you know him? In our country, Christmas is a national holiday. Most Americans know the words of our popular Christmas carols. Almost everybody celebrates this holiday. And during this time of year, even non-Christians who celebrate it will sing along with the carols although it doesn't affect them very much on any deep level. And so they might sing those words, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. They might sing them gladly, but they only sing them with a vague sense of nostalgia for Christmas past. But then, when you see a real brother or sister in Christ, singing those same songs. There's something much deeper happening inside of their heart, isn't there? Suddenly, they're overwhelmed with the truth of those beautiful lyrics. Suddenly, tears are welling up in their eyes as they sing, Hark the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn king, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity. What's the difference between those two people? The difference is really knowing Jesus. That's the difference. Do you know him? You can know him today by placing your faith and trust in him for your salvation. That's why we celebrate Christmas. The angels were right. God had sent a savior into the world, not to save the world politically, but to save the world from our sins. Which means this, in spite of what they thought they needed, God understood what they really needed And in spite of what you think you need, God knows what you really need. A Savior to bring us peace with God. Real peace is not found in politics or power. Real peace is not found in planning and predictability. Real peace is not found in prestige or prosperity. Real peace is found in a person and in a personal relationship with him. Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. Amen? Amen. Worship team, would you come? And as they come, allow me to share the story of the author of this hymn who struggled to find peace in the midst of a great devastating loss in his life. Horatio Spafford was an American lawyer. He first lost everything he had in the Chicago fire of the 1800s. Two years later, 
He sent his wife and daughters on a trip over to Europe, but on the way, tragically, that ship sank. His daughters died instantly. A rescue boat found his wife floating on some debris. She reached land and cabled her husband two words, saved alone. Can you imagine? After Spafford got the news about his family, he was understandably devastated and took much time to grieve. But later in his life, on a journey from America to Europe on a different boat, around the same spot in the Atlantic Ocean, he asked the captain to stop as he began to hear the bell toll. And he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. How does Spafford find that peace? I submit to you this morning, the answer is in the lyrics to the song. Because the lyrics to the song are mostly not about his tragedy. They're mostly about Jesus. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Horatio, what has that got to do with losing your family? Spafford learned, even though I face tremendous difficulties in life, and I don't understand them, and I don't know why things happen the way they do, I do know one thing it can't be is that God doesn't care. After all, look at Jesus. I don't know the reasons for the things that happen in your life, but one thing I know it can't be is that God doesn't love you. After all, look at Jesus. And by focusing his attention on the Son of God, the gift of God to us at Christmas, Horatio found peace. Maybe you're not facing such a tragedy like losing a loved one, but maybe you're struggling to find some peace this season for a different reason. For some of us, Christmas can be a very difficult time of year. The good news of the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2, though, is that same peace is available for you and for me. Because if you know Jesus, you can know peace. Amen?